Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. Well, we're studying our way through the Gospel of Mark. And as we do so, we need to remember that, that Mark was writing this Gospel in the city of Rome. His primary input was from the Apostle Peter. Peter was in Rome at that time, too. And he's writing it to Gentiles or people who were not Jewish. His primary audience were, were non-Jews. And it's extremely important for him to communicate that while Jesus was Jewish and, and most of the action in this gospel takes place in Jewish territory with Jewish people, Jesus' mission was ultimately to bring salvation not just to the Jews, but to the entire world. Jesus came to save Jews and Gentiles. The challenge was that if you talked to the average Jew on the street in Jesus' day, you wouldn't feel a lot, of, a lot of love from them toward the Gentile people around them. The Jews viewed themselves as, as better than Gentiles. After all, they were the chosen people. I'm glad no church people in our day act like that. Instead of a compassionate heart for the lost, they had a, a chip on their shoulders. They viewed Gentiles as, as far from, from God's covenants and separated from God's purposes. They isolated themselves from Gentiles, and they were generally hostile toward them. If you were to look at the temple in Jerusalem, you had the court of Israel, and you had the, in, in the very center you had the Holy of Holies, and you went out in second, and, and the outer court was called the court of the Gentiles. And this is the place that when you read about Jesus cleansing the temple, when he went in and got upset with the money changers and the people cheating people with the sacrifices and all, that's where they set up the tables. And I believe that's why Jesus got so angry and cleansed the temple there because this is the closest that a, that a, that a non-Jew could get to the Holy of Holies. And the Jews are saying, we don't care about that. We're going to put our marketplace there. This was not the attitude that, that God desired. See, God's plan was, was for his people to be a light to all people. His intent was for his people to have hearts of compassion and share the truth of God with all people. He intended to bless all people through the seed of Abraham, not just the Jews. All people would be introduced to the one true God through them. They were supposed to be the light, but that wasn't what happened. And, and, a, and a great illustration of this is the prophet Jonah. We preached, uh, I think it was a four-part series on Jonah, two or three or four, maybe four, four years ago. And uh, you may remember Jonah. We all, saw the, we all knew the story from, from childhood if we went to Sunday school way back then. Remember Jonah? God calls him, and God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Yeah, that's a non-Jewish city. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to, to preach repentance to these Ninevites. I want you to tell them they need to change their ways, else I'm going to destroy their city. And what did Jonah do? He booked the first ship to Tarshish, which is like where Spain is now. Okay? If you know where Nineveh was to the east, that's like going the total opposite way. Jonah would rather risk the wrath of God and disobey God than to go preach to those pagans and see any of them change their hearts and, and, and be forgiven by God. 
And you know the Jonah story, what he he went through there, and he ended up going and finally getting there, and the Ninevites did repent, and Jonah got upset at that. You know, go, Lord, I knew you were going to do this. Well, what do you expect, Jonah? And so, you know, God has to teach him another object lesson. It was hot. Jonah was outside the city, very angry at the repentance. And it's kind of like yesterday, any of you that were at at the block party, wishing that there was more shade. This, this plant comes up, and God calls the plant to give Jonah some shade, and then the next day, overnight, God sends a worm to, to destroy the plant, and I'm like, Jonah's like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? And God's like, you didn't do anything to get the plant. I gave it to you. I blessed you. And now you're angry because it's taken away, and you're angry because I relented, I spared the Ninevites. But this was, this was indicative of the, of, the, of the attitude that the Jews in Jesus' time still had towards Gentiles. And while the Jews were heartless towards the lost nations, the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament clearly tells us that God's plan of salvation is to save people from every nation. In Psalm 87, it talks about God extending his grace to the Egyptians. And and if you remember your Old Testament history, for 400 years, 400 years the, the, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt until God sent Moses to lead them out after the plagues. God would extend grace, we're told, in, in uh, Psalm 87 towards these, these Egyptians. Psalm 87 also talks about God extending salvation to the people of Babylon. You know, these were the enemies of the Jews. In 587 uh, B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into bondage in, in, for 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Psalm 87 also talks about God extending his salvation to the city of Tyre. That's T-Y-R-E, not T-I-R-E, like on your, on your cars. And these citizens were enemies of the Jews. They didn't necessarily start out that way. If you read back in David and Solomon, when they were gathering materials and, and building the temple there in Jerusalem, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent the, the cedars from Lebanon and sent it down to, so they could build, have good wood to, to build the temple with. And we're going to talk more about, about the salvation in that city of Tyre this morning. It's going to become very instructive in our, in, our, in, our, in our scripture this morning. Now, you may be thinking, didn't Jesus tell his disciples not to go to the Gentiles? Well, at one point he did. In Matthew 10, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of Israel. So why would Jesus tell his disciples to, to only work with Jewish people when God's plan was to bring salvation to all people? Well, the answer is a simple answer. There was an order. There was an orderliness to this. God's plan was first of all for the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And this is one of the big, uh, big themes in the book of, of Romans. The Apostle Paul explained it in this way at the beginning of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Salvation of whom? Everyone. The salvation of everyone whom believe, who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And this is why Paul traveled on his missionary journey in the, in, in the book of Acts. And any time he came to a, to a city in the Gentile world there, the first thing he would, would look for would be a synagogue. And Paul would go into the synagogue, and he would start teaching. And uh, sooner or later, the pattern was pretty much the same everywhere Paul went, except the, the, the church at Philippi. At Philippi, there weren't enough Jewish men to, to warrant having a synagogue there. So Paul went to the next best thing. He went down to the river 
where the women were gathering, Jewish women who, who worshiped the God of Israel. And he went down there and started preaching there at the river and met Lydia, the, the, the merchant lady there, the seller of purple, we're told, an example of a great businesswoman in the Bible. But Paul would go to these places, he'd go to the synagogue, and sooner or later, the Jewish leaders would get upset. He'd touch a nerve with them, especially when he'd be teaching, you know, that the gospel's for everyone. And what'd they do? They kicked him out of the synagogue. So Paul would do that, and then he'd go someplace else within the city, and he would take some of the people, some of the Jews who believed that this was God's will, and then he would add to it the Gentiles, who the Jews didn't want in their synagogue because they thought they should be Jews, and then... That was the nucleus that he used to plant the churches throughout the New Testament. We find the same thing in Acts chapter 2 in the fabric of the Great Commission. The gospel, Jesus says, is to be taken first to Jerusalem, then to Judea. This is like concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria. And if you know the history of the Samaritans, Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them. They were half-breeds to the north, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. In other words, to all the other people groups of the world. And so the Bible tells us that there's an order to God's plan when it comes to sharing the gospel. And historically, God's offer of salvation was to his chosen people first and then to other non-Jews afterwards. So this morning, we're going to continue our study in the gospel of Mark. We're going to begin at verse 24 of chapter 7. And the first thing I want to look at there is the background. So if you're taking notes, grab that life note sheet and go ahead and fill in that first word, background. It says in verse 24, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. Now it starts and says, Jesus left that place. And you say, what place? What are you talking about? Well, the place they're talking about was Capernaum. That's the city down to the, on the northwest shore of Sea of Galilee. It's where kind of the base of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And we've seen already that his uh, kind of the house he was at most of the time there, the place he stayed was the household of, of Peter and Andrew, these two brothers who were, who were fishermen, who Jesus called and said, I'm going I'm to make you fishers of men. What had he been doing in Capernaum? The Jews had sent off for some scholars, so to say, from, from Jerusalem, these, these scribes, these experts in the law, because they, they wanted to get rid of Jesus, the, the Jewish leaders in Capernaum. So these scribes, these scholars from Jerusalem came up, and we've spent the last two weeks looking at Jesus confronting them, confronting them about their legalism, about how they had made the, the traditions of man even more important than the scripture itself. And then last week, we, we looked at it as, as, as he was going against the teaching where it's saying, where they, they were more worried about what you put in, all these laws, all these rituals that you follow. And he's, he said, no, it's what comes out of a man that contaminates him, that makes him impure, not what goes into a man or woman. It's what comes out that's important. And, and as if to illustrate, it's kind of, kind of um, interesting if you look at it, he's kind of illustrating that whole point, because then what does he do immediately? He leaves and he goes to pagan country, a place where most self-respecting Jews wouldn't be caught dead. So he goes up there, and, and he had to do this because after the feeding of the 5,000 we looked at about a month ago, and the feeding of the 5,000, actually we said about more like 15 to 20,000. So well, after that, the people wanted to take Jesus, and they wanted to make him king. They wanted to take him straight down to Jerusalem and install him as the king. 
But their idea of king was like an earthly king, and that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't Jesus' mission, so Jesus got, a, got away from that. This isn't what he wants to do, so he's, he's, he's fighting against this uh, there. He's fighting against the religious people that, that don't like what he's saying because he's saying, you know, your, your traditions shouldn't be more important than what God gave Moses. And so he knows that he's got about a year left here. This is about a year before he's going to go to the cross and be crucified. And he's got, he's got some stuff he wants to do. He wants to teach Peter and the boys. They, they need some training. And so what Jesus does is he withdraws, and he goes up to Tyre. That's about 35 miles northwest of, uh, of Capernaum. Capernaum is down here. Jerusalem is way down here off the map. He goes to Tyre and then up, uh, up the coast there side, and that's about another 20 miles up there. Jesus is taking the guys up there because he wants to get away from the crowds that are wanting to make him king. He's wanting to get away from the hassle of all the, the people from, from Jerusalem and such like that. And he wants to focus on, on training Peter and the guys. Now, Tyre and Sidon, had a, they, were, they were pagan cities. They were very prosperous pagan cities. They're in what's called Syrophoenicia, which we're going to talk about some more later. Uh, if you remember your, your world history, the Phoenicians were seagoing. They were well-known as sailors. And, and so they, their ports there at Tyre and Sidon were, were very prosperous cities. Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent that, that wood down to David and Solomon. But by this time, in Jesus' time, there had been some history there where there's a lot of antagonism. Uh, between Tyre and Israel. And part of this was due to this lady by the name of, and that's a stretch in calling her a lady, but her name was Jezebel. Her name has become the antithesis of lady in our modern, modern English. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Tyre. She married King Ahab, the king of the, of the northern kingdom of Israel after, the, after David, when the kingdom split after Solomon. And so she married King Ahab there, and she worked hard to introduce Baal worship in the northern kingdom. And this was a major problem. What's the first commandment God said? You're not going to have any other gods but me. But she's saying, hey, we need to worship Baal. And she has these hundreds of prophets. Great showdown between the prophets of Baal and the great prophet Elijah. It happened right there at Mount Carmel. This went on, and ultimately in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was carried off into exile by the Assyrians. The Jews understood this history, and so they're, they're not keen on the people of Tyre because that's where Jezebel came from. And as cities go, these cities, they represent the most extreme forms of, of paganism. And as a revered rabbi, Jews would never expect Jesus to go up there. So that's actually a good thing because he's trying to get away from the, from the Jews so he can teach the guys. Now, this trip into uh, the pagan territory, this is the only time that we know that Jesus left Israel itself, other than when he was a child and we're told that he and his family had to go as refugees and leave Bethlehem when Herod was killing all the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem. This is the only other time, and, and this wasn't a quick trip. It's about probably about 120 to 150 miles total, and they're going to go up, and we're going to see over the next couple weeks, we're going to see him go back up and then come back down the other side, down to the Decapolis. It could have lasted weeks or it could have lasted months. See the Decapolis down here? basically means 10 cities. Polis is the Greek word for city. Deca is 10. But it says in verse 31, the last verse that we're looking at this week, I'm skipping ahead, it says, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Now this, uh, as I said, uh, was not a trip to reach people with the gospel. It was a trip where Jesus was trying to teach 
and train his disciples to help them understand the gospel and a better understanding of ministry. And that's probably why it tells us in the opening verse that Jesus entered the house and he really didn't want people to, to know he was there. He wanted to be incognito, but it's still hard for him to avoid a crowd because even in this Gentile territory up there, they had heard of Jesus. He had already become well known. We learned this back at Mark chapter 3. It said Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, that's the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, that's the southern part of Israel, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, that's on the east side of the Jordan, and where? Around Tyre and Sidon. So some folks had come down all the way back in chapter 3 and, had, and knew about this ministry. They knew, they knew about Jesus. And those folks, as they traveled and went back up to Tyre and Sidon, they probably took this news about this, this healer, this teacher, that it's not like any other teacher. It teaches us someone with authority. So Jesus can try his best to stay undercover, but he was already known. His reputation preceded him, as we, as we like to say. And so he couldn't keep his identity a secret. So let's meet the woman who came to Jesus as soon as she heard. In verse 25 of Mark 7, it says, In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now, Matthew in, in chapter 15 has a parallel account of this story, and we're going to use Matthew and Mark kind of side by side here as we look at this and we get the details uh, from both of them in this, um, in this thing. And, and Matthew tells us a Canaanite woman from that vicinity, you know, in other words, her ancestors had been the some of the original inhabitants of Canaan, and that's not good because God had told the Israelites to, to wipe out all the Canaanites. They were pagans. They did child sacrifice and all this. God said, go in, take over the land, but get rid of all these people that were there initially. So a Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. And so these Canaanites, they were far away from God. But she was also Syrophoenician. The Roman general Ptolemy had basically placed this part of Phoenicia on that side of the map there under Syria, as opposed to the part of Phoenicia that was over on the northern coast of Africa. And it tells us that the woman, again, is underscoring the fact that she wasn't a Jew, and she probably had some Roman background, and the Roman culture, the Roman gods were probably involved in, in her worship. Now, so she had that going against her as far as from a Jewish perspective is concerned. Additionally against her from a Jewish perspective was the fact that she was a woman, and while Jesus gave a high place to women, in the culture of that day, women were given a very low place. One common prayer that Jewish men would pray every morning in that culture began with these words, God, thank you for not making me a woman or a Gentile. Now, guys, I don't encourage you to write that in the margin of your Bible or the cover and start using that prayer. because not, Don't worry about your wife or the women in your life. God's not going to be pleased with you praying that prayer. Okay? That just shows the, the racist and the chauvinistic culture that was there. So this woman had everything against her. She was a woman, which meant she wasn't respected in the minds of many Jews. She was a Canaanite, the sworn enemy of the Jews. She was Syrophoenician, so she identified with the, with the pagan Roman gods. And fourthly, she was living in one of the most hardcore pagan cities of that day. And so, in short, the background of this lady identifies her as, from a social perspective as being about as far away from God as you can get. And for her to even be in Jesus' presence in the mind of many Jews would have been shameful. We often hear about Jews despising tax collectors. Well, 
They, they'd, they'd rather be around 10 tax collectors than a woman like this. But here's the beautiful part of the story. While this lady's background was considered terrible, her attitude was great. And we're going to see the outcome of that in a few minutes. She approached Jesus and she fell at his feet and she begged him to heal her daughter who was demon-possessed. And the last time we saw anybody in Mark's gospel fall at Jesus' feet and beg him for something was the synagogue ruler in Capernaum, a guy by the name of Jairus, back in chapter 5. Remember, he had a daughter who was 12 years old and she was sick and she was, she was on death's bed. And he didn't immediately rush to Jesus, remember? If you didn't, don't have it, go back and pick up the podcast and, and online and listen to it. You know, he had to get past his pride because he was a synagogue ruler. He could get fired from his job because he knew that the Jewish authorities were against this, this Jesus. But he came to Jesus and he prostrated himself before Jesus and said, Please heal my daughter. Now, he was a spiritual elite in Capernaum looking for Jesus to heal his daughter. And, and, and this woman, she couldn't have been further from the background and pedigree of Jairus. It says her daughter was suffering terribly from demon possession. In that culture, young girls as early as 12 and 13 were, were married off. And since she wasn't married, this means that this girl's probably about 8 to 10 years of age. And to have a, a daughter of that age that was possessed by a demon would have been a very horrifying experience for, for any mother. We learned back from the man of the tombs a few chapters ago. We saw the, the gathering demoniac who was possessed by, by legion, by, by demons, that the demon was causing him to scrape himself, to cut himself with rocks and, and trying to hurt himself. And we're going to see in a couple chapters from now, we're going to see when Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration in, in Mark chapter 9, we're going to see a man who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus for healing. And Jesus was up on the mountain and the guy's his other nine disciples, he took Peter, James, and John up with him, but the other nine at the base of the mountain, and they can't cast the demon out. And the father says, you know, many times it's thrown him into a fire and it's tried to hurt him. And that's what demon possession manifests in people's lives. So we, we see this and we can imagine this, this mother's angst and being concerned, the panic, the horror that, that must be. You know, she'd already gone through all of her Canaanite gods and the Roman gods and the ceremonies that the priests wanted her to do, and, and nothing had been able to, to get rid of the demon. Her daughter didn't get any better. She probably got worse, and, and she no longer had confidence in, in those methods. But somehow, she'd heard about Jesus. And so she brings herself to Jesus. She, she knew very little about him, but what she did know, she said, you know, this is my chance. This is my, this is my hope. Now, Mark says that the woman begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. We already know she's on her knees in front of Jesus. She's begging. Matthew says that she's not just begging. Matthew tells us that she was crying, and you can picture the tears running down her face as she's on her knees begging for her daughter's life. And she's, she's placing all of her hope in this miracle worker from, from Galilee. And it's interesting, the Greek tense in Mark's account doesn't just say that she asked once for her daughter to be saved. It's in the imperfect verbal tense there. It means she was continually asking for this, repeatedly asking for us. So this is one desperate mother who loved her daughter dearly. Matthew's account adds an important piece of information here that we don't have in Mark's. And that's that this woman from a very hardcore pagan background, she addressed Jesus as the son of David. Now that's not a pagan title. That's a Jewish title. Remember David, the great king of Israel? The son of David is, is a messianic title, as we say. So she's basically addressing him as Messiah, even though she's not even Jewish. It's a title that the crowds will later use on Palm Sunday when Jesus makes his triumphal 
entry into Jerusalem the week before he's killed. Now, she may have been a hardcore pagan that was far from God, but she was putting the pieces together about Jesus the best that she could. And so she was identifying him, whether wantingly or not, as the long-awaited Messiah. She knew that she didn't deserve Jesus' help. She knew that her background was wrong. She knew that she wasn't a Jew. She knew that she was desperate. But she was coming to Jesus because he was her only hope. So let's continue the story of Matthew. In verse 23, it says, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Wow. These guys had the compassion of a brick. Earlier I told you the Jews had no love for, for Gentiles, and this is an example of that in, in action. In fact, the, 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 the disciples basically say, ignore her, send her away, tell her to go. Just, just vamos, get out, get out of here. You know, they, wanted, they, they probably knew that Jesus uh, had a special time of teaching he wanted to have with them, and they're like, hey, this is going to take away from our time. This is our guy time to be here to get, get rid of her. And so they showed no concern, no compassion for the woman. All they could see was her background and see who she was, not what she could be or not see even, they couldn't even see how she was coming to Jesus. Now Jesus, we see him apparently, you know, he appeared to ignore her at first. And I'm going to explain why I think he did that at first, why he appeared to, to ignore her. Every other place in the gospel, we see Jesus is full of compassion for people who are afflicted. But here he's kind of, he's kind of belaboring. He's got a point to make. It's kind of like, you know, I think of, of here, of like in the gospel of John, where, where Jesus took his time getting to Lazarus' grave to raise Lazarus from the grave. And he had a point in doing that. He was trying to teach something there. And when God tarries, when God says, wait, it's usually because he wants to teach us something. Amen? I believe the sooner we learn the lesson, the sooner God can... God, God will show up there. So I don't think it's because Jesus didn't have compassion here. This was a training trip for his disciples. And by him tarrying and answering the woman's pleas, I believe it caused the disciples to see some things here that they may not have seen if he had immediately cast the demon out of the woman's daughter. Even though her background set her up as someone who should be far from God, the attitude of her heart was on display here. Jesus saw it. He knew their heart. But the attitude of her heart was on display for the disciples. They saw her as a nuisance, as a, as, as a bother. And so they could see that she was someone who was earnestly seeking Jesus. They could hear her use that title, Son of David. And that probably caused their eyebrows to go up or their kind of quizzical looks on their face. Why is this pagan calling him the Messiah? But she was penitent. And there was a, there was a, there was a, a right way of approaching Jesus and to receive his mercy. And finally, Jesus answered to her in verse 24. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, it's not your time yet. Right now, it's just the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. She said, Lord, help me. And she basically ignored what he, was saying, what he said and said, Lord, help me. You know, you're my only hope. I, I, I don't care about only the lost sheep of Israel thing here. I need you. I may be a Gentile, but I need you, is what she's saying. I may be a Syrophoenician, I may be a Gentile, but, and you may have come for the Jews first. I love her response to Jesus here. She placed everything there at his feet. She brought her entire life, she brought her daughter's need, and she said, Lord, help me. And I'd ask you, have you ever been there in your life? Have you ever come before Jesus with all of your, your broken pieces of your life where, where you could say nothing else but, 
Lord, help me. That's all you have to offer him is, is your plea, those three simple words. And if you have, then you know, you understand a bit of, of what this woman is experiencing here. Now let's return to Mark for the rest of the story. We're going to see Jesus' response here. And he responds with a parable. He says, first let the children eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Okay, now what does that mean? I'm, I'm sure Peter and the guys are sitting there scratching their heads. Well, here goes one of those parables again. we have to ask him later what this really means. But she had some insight there. She said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So what is Jesus saying with this comedy? He, he told this woman a small parable that she could understand. She's a woman. She was familiar with cooking food for her family and all. You, when you make dinner, you, you feed the children first. This wasn't like they had a can of Alpo or something there and they feed. My wife usually feeds the dog first. Lou feeds Barnabas first because we figure if we put Barnabas' food over there, then he's going to be preoccupied with his food and he's going to leave us alone while we're eating. Doesn't work, okay? If you've got a dog, particularly a little dog, you know it doesn't, doesn't work. Either they'll gobble down their food real quick and then come over to where you are, or they'll say, wait a minute, there's better food over there because I know what you're eating. Jesus said, when you make your dinner, you, you feed the children first, then later, after the children are eat, you feed the leftovers to the dogs. You don't give the dogs the food that you made for dinner first. You don't, the kids don't get the leftovers, the dog does. And Jesus is saying that there's an order and a priority when it comes to salvation. The Jews came first. It was not yet God's timing for the Gentiles to receive salvation, receive the benefits. And, and Jesus is not directly calling this woman a dog, okay? It's a, it's a, it's a parable. It's a, it's a story. It's a, it's a metaphor there. He's simply telling this parable that the kids eat first before the pets. Now, to understand this, you need to understand that, that dogs in the ancient world weren't like we have. We weren't like Gizmo and, and Barnabas and Zoe. We, we, we have dogs as pets. In that world, they had these wild dogs, we call them. Yeah, they had some domesticated dogs, but they were typically smaller dogs and such, and, and they, would be, they would be house dogs. And that's actually the word he uses here. He uses the Greek word kinarion, which is the, the, the word for a house dog, not for these big dogs that wander around in packs trying to get whatever they can get. So when Jesus makes the comparison between the children and the dogs, it's, it's, he's, he's not meaning to insult her. It's a parable that a mother with, with children and a little pet dog in their house would understand. And those of you, you and I know that, you know, if we've got kids, and sometimes it's not just little kids, it's big kids too, that if, if you have a dog there under the table, what do people want to do? They try to feed the dog. We've got a friend, John, he comes to our house, and Lou has to re remind him every time, our dog does not eat people food. Don't feed him, John. And John's always trying to, trying to sneak food to, food to Barnabas or Barnabas or any other dogs. And they're just a morsel. Jesus is making this comparison. And so the dogs, the dogs would get scraps. They would get the crumbs from the table from the children. And so that's what the lady's begging for, just a scrap, just a, a morsel. And so Jesus has said that the door's not wide open for the Gentiles yet, but she's saying, hey, crack that door a little bit. Just a little bit of your mercy, just a little bit of your blessing. Do we have to wait till the kids are, are finished eating? Or, or can we have some now? Will you heal my daughter now? Is basically what she's saying to him. And there's a big contrast between this woman and the scribes and Pharisees. Look at their attitude that we've looked at the last two weeks. 
their self-important religious attitudes, the way they came to Jesus. They had all the right background. They had all the right education, but they had a terrible, rotten attitude towards the Savior of the world. They were undermining him. They were plotting his death. Whereas this woman had the wrong background. She didn't have the education, didn't have the lineage or anything like that. But she came with the right heart. And we talked about heart the last couple of weeks, about the importance of, of having the right heart in approaching God. And she placed all of her faith in Jesus. She humbled herself before him with tears on her knees. And even though she realized that it wasn't time for the door to be wide open, she was willing to beg and ask Jesus. So look in verse 29, how Jesus responded. He told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her daughter lying on the bed and the demon gone. Why did Jesus heal her daughter? She may have been a Gentile with the wrong background who was far from God, but Jesus honored her heart. He honored her approach. He honored her persistence. He honored her, her humility in coming to him and placing everything before him. Not counting on her own confidence, not counting on her own goodness. She knew that she wasn't good enough for, for, for the Messiah. She wasn't good enough for, for this, this healer, but she placed everything in front of him. And it says that Jesus marveled. Jesus marveled at her faith. Look at what Matthew records. And this is where I get this. In Matthew uh, 15, 28, it says, Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Can you, can you imagine Jesus saying, O woman, O man, great is your faith. Wouldn't it be great to have Jesus marvel at your faith or mine? This woman seemed to have everything working against her, but she placed great faith in Jesus and she got great mercy from Jesus. And folks, nothing is different today. Jesus is the same today as he was yesterday, same back then. It doesn't matter your background. Jesus doesn't care what your background is. What matters is the attitude with which you humbly approach him, seeking his grace and his mercy. But unfortunately, some of us, some of us are like those scribes and, and those Pharisees, those religious folks that Jesus saved his harshest words for. We trust in our own goodness. We trust in our own righteousness. We have our perfect Sunday school attendance for 100 years. I know I'm exaggerating, okay? But, but we do that. And we trust in our own righteousness. If we're not careful, we start, as we get older in the Christian faith, we start straying into that. And we need to, we need to keep a humble spirit, a contrite spirit before, before God. With God, with Jesus, a humble attitude trumps your background, your religious pedigree every time. I've oftentimes said, you know, I love grandkids, but God has no grandkids. He only has kids, okay? You don't get in because your parents did this or did that. You don't get in because your, your, your family has sat in the first pew in the church for, you know, the last 150 years. That's not, that's not what the scripture says. Now, some of us, have, uh, we, we would come from that attitude, you know, the scribes and Pharisees, but others of us find ourselves not identifying with the Pharisees and the scribes, but we find ourselves identifying with this woman. Many of us may have come from the other side of the tracks. We don't have that kind of, that kind of pedigree. Maybe we had a terrible background, but the good news is that our backgrounds don't matter. What matters is the attitudes of our hearts, and anyone then or now who places great faith in Jesus will receive great mercy from Jesus, no matter our background, no matter what we've done. 
And by getting that mercy from him, it means that, that we're born again. We're, we're born spiritually. We're born from above, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, when we trust in him. And God completely forgives us of our sin. He gives us new hearts that love Jesus more than they love sin. And he takes us for all eternity, and, and God adopts us as sons and daughters. We're like brothers and sisters to Jesus, the, the Son of God. And what greater mercy can anyone receive than this mercy offered to us through Jesus when we come to him in the way and the example of this Syrophoenician woman. So what can we learn from this, this passage? I've got a couple of uh, things, uh, lessons that we can learn up there. In the first one, I've been beating like a drum, so you, you should have gotten that one already. Our past doesn't matter. Our past doesn't matter. God, God doesn't care your spiritual pedigree, who your parents were, who your grandparents were. He doesn't he didn't care what you, what, what you did 25 years ago. It matters to him, but you know, my, my exo, my last ship, used to always ask, you know, what have you done for me today? What have you done for me today? Now, it's not, I'm not talking about teaching a works righteousness, okay? The works should come out of the righteousness of Christ that's evident and working in our lives. And when the righteousness of Christ is, is evident and working in our lives, then we will be doing things for God. We don't do, it, do them to get salvation. We do them as a result of salvation in Christ. So our past doesn't matter. God can use any past that we have. He can redeem it. The second thing that we need to understand and we need a, a lesson to learn here is don't play favorites. Don't play favorites. The disciples and the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they wrote people off based upon what their background was. They thought that God had favorites. They thought that just because, they, just because we're Jews and, and, and we're taught there in the New Testament that you know, God can take rocks and make, make followers of himself out of, out of those rocks. You know, so don't trust in your heritage. Don't trust in your lineage. Don't trust in your church attendance and all that kind of stuff. And, and we shouldn't do that either. We should never see anybody. Everybody we're taught in Scripture, everybody is created in the image of God. Every single human being is an image bearer of God. Even the guy with the P name over in Russia, Putin. He's an image bearer of God. We should be praying for him. We should be praying for a change of his heart. We should be praying for, 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 for mercy for his soul. We should be praying that he comes to an awareness, a saving knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. And I'm just using him, I'm using him as an example because that's what's in the news today, folks. You could take any, any, any leader or any person. And, I, and I've tried over the years to teach you here to, to view people. Don't view people as Christians and not Christians. Please always, always, always view people as not Christians, what? Yet. Okay, let's try it again. Not Christians yet. Not Christians yet, because there's, there's something that happens in your mind. Uh, when, when you look at someone as Christian, non-Christian, we, we, we oftentimes tend to think, well, well, this person's just so far from God. Do you, do you, who would have thunk? Yeah, how's that? Who would have thunk that, that that Syrophoenician woman would have come to Jesus? But she did. You know, I've been guilty of this probably just as much as you have, to look at someone's actions or look at who they are or what they've done and think, man, that person will never come to Christ. But never write anybody off because anybody that you run across like that is not a Christian yet. So keep that in mind. Don't play favorites. And then the question to ask yourself this week is, like the woman whom Jesus committed for her faith, would Jesus commend you and me for our faith? 
would Jesus commend us for our faith? And I'm not just talking about a faith that where we made a decision 25, 30, 40 years ago. And yeah, that, that faith may save you and all, but, but, but what are you doing for Jesus now? What have you done for him today? How are you sharing that faith? How are you reaching out to the neighbors, two to your left, two to your right, the neighbor across the street from you? How are you living your life in a missional way? Because that is ultimately what a believer is supposed to be doing. And if you're here today and you haven't crossed that line of faith, there's nothing better that you could do on this day here in, in March 2022. But to cross that line of faith in Jesus Christ and become a follower of his, receive salvation, be adopted into his kingdom. Please stand as Bruce and Greg lead us in a final song. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.